Today's scripture can be found in your Bible in the book of Psalms, chapter 29, starting at verse 1. You can also follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, Lake Ballin Church. And good morning to those of you who are online. Well, if you are a sports fan, uh, if you watch college basketball or the NFL, or if you watch golf, you probably know the name Jim Nance. He is a sports commentator. And I particularly remember Jim Nance for his sports casting uh, for the Masters tournament, the major uh, golf tournament at the Masters. And this is what Jim Nance says when he was uh, sportscasting in 1997. He says this, let the record show, a little after 5.30 on this Friday, April 11th, Tiger takes the lead for the first time ever at the Masters. And of course, the rest is history. The whole world of golf is changed. As, as you may know, in 1997, Tiger Woods won the Masters. Uh, he was 21 years old. This is his first uh, Masters as a professional. Uh, and he didn't just win the Masters. He destroyed the competition. He broke all sorts of records. He, he won by a record 12 strokes. Now, if, if you're a golfer, uh, that means something to you. If you're not a golfer, you probably can't appreciate what it means to win the Masters by 12 strokes. Tiger Woods was playing against the very best in the world, and they were like nothing to him. They were like nothing to him. He lapped the field. He lapped the field. And what was stunning that I remember viewing that uh, telecast was Tiger's power how he just, he just bulldozed over everyone and he bulldozed over the entire course. Because you see, at that time in the world of golf, golf was not a power game. Golf was not a power game. It was a, it was a game of finesse. And here came this guy, Tiger Woods, who was pumping iron, lifting weights, 
and smacking the ball over 300 yards. And it completely changed the game. And so much so that Augusta National, the uh, golf course at the Masters, uh, they went about doing what, what was known as tiger-proofing the golf course. And you may have heard of that. They had to extend the course by over 500 yards over a number of years because, because the course was not playing the way it was designed to be played. Tiger just went past all of those obstacles. And it was a, it was a tremendous, glorious, awesome display of power. You know, uh, Tiger's popularity and what he did on that day, it, it just changed golf forever. I remember that people that, that don't watch golf, like my mom, would talk to me about Tiger Woods, and she would start to watch golf. She's never played golf, but she was following Tiger and what he was doing because she knew there was something special happening in the world of golf, that something great had arrived on the scene. So Tiger became the king of the golf world, the king of the golf world. But you know what? Today, Tiger is no longer the king. And if you think about his power, there are so many more golfers now that hit the ball further than, than Tiger. Tiger's glory has faded. He's no longer king of the golf world. In fact, he is not even in the top 100 anymore. No longer king, his glory has faded, his power has weakened. Well, this morning as we're looking at this psalm, Psalm 29, we're going to see a glorious display of power, an awesome display of power, power that doesn't weaken. We're going to look at the one who is king over all, and his kingship is forever. Unlike Tiger, and unlike man whose glory fades, whose strength fails, God's power, God's glory doesn't fade. It doesn't shrink away. So we're going to look at the glory of God in heaven. We're going to look at what the psalmist paints for us, a picture of the power of God in the storm. And then we're going to look at the last two verses and see the kingship of God over all of creation. So let's look at that, the, the glory of God in heaven. You're going to see this in the first two verses. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now that word ascribe, we don't, we don't use it too often. Uh, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about it. In the King James, uh, it translates that Hebrew word give, and give is a great translation of it. Give to the Lord glory and strength, but of course, we don't actually give strength to the Lord, uh, so it has a wider meaning than that, just to simply give. It has this meaning in, in certain cases to attribute to, to say that the source or the cause of something is something else. And so what's going on here in the scriptures is, is attributing to God strength. He is the source of strength. He's the source of glory. And we are to give him glory. Now, it's interesting here that the psalmist is saying, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. 
Who are those? Who are the heavenly beings? These are the angels. And so what the psalmist is saying, he's actually commanding. He's commanding heaven. He's commanding the angels to worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. And worship is fundamentally an act of giving. Back to that word, ascribe. The angels are to give glory to the Lord. So much so that he is honored, that he is worshiped. They're to give glory to his name. His name is Yahweh. And in the Hebrew, uh, we know Yahweh refers to I am that I am. That God is the eternal God, that he is self-existent. He exists as a part and distinct from his creation, that he is holy in splendor. Worship is something fundamentally that we give. The angels are doing that in heaven. You know, as I've looked over my life and think about all of the many worship services that I've attended, and I've attended thousands of worship services, or at least a couple thousand, and I think about the fact that I've gone to these worship services and I've brought my own sinful heart. I brought my own sinful heart going to worship not to give, not to give to, but thinking about what I can get. What can I receive? Leaving worship services, kind of having a scorecard and grading, what did I get? What did the worship leader and the band give to me? What did the preacher give to me? But worship is fundamentally, fundamentally something that we give to the Lord, not what we get. And so it's my sinful nature when I go to these worship services, I realize in my heart, I bring my own sinful nature seeking what I can get from worship and not what I can give. But scripture is telling us that God is so worthy of worship because of who he is. And that scripture says also that it is actually due to him. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Glory is due to God. Worship is owed to God because of who he is. He is the creator. If he didn't hold everything together, at this very moment, we would cease to exist. You know, in the gospel narratives, when Jesus is, is going into Jerusalem, we celebrate this as Palm Sunday. Uh, the people are worshiping him. And in Luke 19, this is what you hear. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the people were lining the streets. They were laying down their coats. They were laying down branches, praising the Lord. And then what happens? The religious establishment shows up and they said, Jesus, rebuke them. Rebuke them. And Jesus replies in this way, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because creation owes worship to the creator. All of creation owes worship to the creator. We wouldn't be here if he didn't create us. Now, you may find it strange that the angels are being ordered to worship. Don't forget, 
they're actually part of the creation too. They're part of the creation. And you may wonder when David is ordering the angels, commanding them to worship, to ascribe to the Lord, are they bristling? Are they, are they saying, hey, we are angelic beings. We're more powerful than you. Why are you telling us to worship? Let me assure you that the angels, they're, they're not sad about this. They're not bristling at this call to worship. In Revelation chapter 4, we get a picture of what happens in heaven. What is happening around the throne room of God? And it's as if the apostle John is pulling back the veil and we get a glimpse, we get a vision. What's going on in heaven? This is what the scripture says in Revelation 4, 8. Day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This day and night, they never cease. This is the angelic beings that surround the throne. They're continually worshiping God. And so, yeah, if they hear humans say, worship the Lord, they're going to fall down and they're going to worship the Lord. Worship is not only due to God because he is the creator. Actually, it ought to be automatic for us. It ought to be automatic Why is that? Because when you are in the presence of greatness, when you are in the presence of majesty and splendor, you're going to automatically worship. And that 1997 Masters, as the rounds were going on, there was another golfer. His name was Paul Azinger. And Paul was saying in an interview, uh, in retrospect, he was saying, you know, I'm getting paired with uh, Tiger Woods, and I wanna see <laughs> what this hoopla is all about, you know? I mean, he's just, a, he's just a 21-year-old kid. And let me quote to you <laughs> what Paul Azinger says when he first saw Tiger hit the golf ball. I actually can't say it exactly, you'll understand why. He says this, holy bleep, 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 bleep. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen a ball leave like that. He he was blown away. He was astonished. He was in awe. He knew he was in the presence of greatness. Worship ought to be automatic for the creation because we are in the presence of greatness. But sadly, it is not. In heaven, it is continual, but on earth, It is not. That is why we say, our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, there is worship continually, but on earth, it is lacking. One of the things about this psalm that that you may pick up on is the silence, the begging question that we see this worship in heaven, but What is the response on earth? What is the response on earth? Uh, The reality is, is that as humans made in God's image, we actually all seek glory. We all seek glory, but we seek it in the wrong places. Not from the creator, but from the creation, from the creature, all right? Our culture, it worships the creature. We ascribe glory 
to the creature, to athletes, to, to actors, to artists. Why? Because they're giving us a glimpse of glory. We ascribe glory to the mountains and to the vastness of the ocean, but not to the one who, with his power and his creativity, created those things. We give glory to the names of people. We, we, we revere them. We are in awe of names like Taylor Swift and LeBron James, who is king, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. But we don't give glory to the name of the Lord. But it goes even deeper. It goes even deeper than that. We seek glory, not just in the creatures, not just in the creations, but we seek it for ourselves. I seek it for myself. I seek to build up my reputation. I seek to build up my own image. And you may be a little bit like me. I mean, who doesn't want a great reputation? Who doesn't want a great image? I mean, isn't that what we see a lot going on on social media? Building up of an image, building up of a reputation, getting likes, being worshipped. You know, one of my favorite places on earth is the Grand Tetons National Park. And it's a glorious place. The mountains are stunning. And I remember as I was traveling about in Wyoming, stopping at one place and getting out, um, looking at the mountains. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see this prairie dog pop up. And I'm distracted. And I'm looking at this prairie dog. And another one's popping up. And another. And these little prairie dogs, it was as if they were saying, look at me. Take your gaze away from the glorious mountains and look at me. They were stealing the glory of something even greater. I'm a little glory stealer just like that prairie dog. I'm a little glory stealer just like that prairie dog and seek to steal glory from someone who is far greater. And even more than that, I have in my life these other things, these other things that are little glory stickers that steal my affection, steal my heart, steal the rightful place that only God should occupy and steal my heart and cause me to worship. One of the ways that you can kind of diagnose for yourself where you stand in this in terms of glory seeking is to ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? Whether it's at work, whether it's at school, even right now this morning, why are you doing it? Or maybe the better question than why is for who are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for the glory of the Lord or are you doing it for your own glory? Are you doing it for the applause of men or are you doing it for the glory of God? I know when I, I submit my heart to those types of questions, I get convicted and see that I am a little glory stealer. Stealing glory from something so, someone so majestic, someone far greater than myself. And this is where the gospel, this is where the good news of Jesus Christ can save us from ourselves. When we see a God who empties himself, 
who leaves a throne of endless glory and comes down to earth, enters his creation that has been ruined by sin, that is filled with evil, and he submits himself to the hands of evil men to be crucified for us, that undercuts our glory. When we see Jesus emptying himself for us, it empties us of our own incessant need for self-worship. When we see Jesus' humility, it reframes our pride. It, It casts a different light on our own ego. And our pride and our own little glory stealing looks quite shallow. It looks quite empty. It looks quite petty. On earth, worship does not look like it looks like in heaven. There's glory in heaven. There's worship in heaven. And now in verses 3 through 9, we see the psalmist painting us a vivid picture of the power of God. And he does that by painting a picture of a powerful storm. And as you read through these these verses, you're going to see that this storm is starting out over the Mediterranean Sea. His voice is thundering over the seas. And this powerful storm is going to move from the west to the east. And it's going to hit the coastland. And it's going hit, hit to the, hit the forests, and it's going to hit the deserts, and it's going to hit the mountains, so much so that it's going to display the awesome power of God. And when you see the words like the Lebanon, in Lebanon, the, the cedars of Lebanon, it's referring to those mighty trees that are 80 feet tall and, and 40 feet across. These are thundering trees, strong and mighty, powerful materials that man was using in those days to build things in society. And yet when when the storm arrives on the coast, it breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And when it hits the mountains, those mountains of of Lebanon and Mount Hermon, that's what Syrian is referring to, the psalmist compares those mighty, majestic mountains to what? A skipping young calf, a young wild ox. And then the storm goes over the mountains and then it hits the wilderness, the wilderness of Kadesh, the desert. And it strips the forest bare. So much is the thunder of the Lord that it even causes the doe to give birth. What the psalmist is doing here, he's trying to paint the picture of this storm and he's trying to show you that God's glory is in this storm. His power is displayed, is manifested in this mighty storm. Now, as Floridians, if you've been here for any number of years, you know a little bit about the power of the storm. And if you're an adventurous person like me, you've gone out into the power of the storm. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I've done this. When When the hurricane hits, every once in a while, I'll just go out and just want to feel like what is it to stand in the middle of a hurricane, right? It's like those people on the, those, those dumb people on the Weather Channel, right? You know, trying to stand up and give the forecast, and they're getting blown over, right? In 2018, Hurricane Michael hit Florida, the panhandle of Florida. It's actually the third strongest storm to ever hit Florida. It hit Mexico Beach. And what I remember of that storm is the before and after pictures, those satellite photos. 
You know, Mexico Beach, there was a picture of all the houses and businesses and docks and boats before the storm and then after the storm, wiped away. The storm was so powerful that it obliterated everything. I remember uh, Cape Sandblast. It's a, it's, it's a geological feature. It's like a barrier island uh, protecting a coastal inland area from the ocean, completely rearranged. The storm just blasted right through and created a brand new inlet. I remember seeing the forests, and you might have seen these pictures where, what, what was it, that all the trees were laying down, the forest stripped bare by this mighty, powerful storm. That's what the psalmist is trying to communicate to his audience. The voice of God is the thunder in the storm, but he is not the storm itself. In that culture, they may have confused the storm with God himself. Why? Because there was a Canaanite God whose name was Baal. He was the storm God. But no, the psalmist is saying the Lord is above the storm. He is Lord of the storm. And any power on earth is puny. It's insignificant compared to him. Not the mountain, not the forest, not the desert, not the wild animals, and certainly not men can stand in the way of this powerful God. And when we encounter power like this, what is our natural response? I know mine is fear. You know, as a surfer growing up, I used to chase hurricanes. And when a swell was coming, I would grab my board and I would paddle out and, and surf these, these waves. Um, it, it reminds me of a quote. Uh, some of the older folks in the audience will get this. A man has to know his limitations. A man has to know his limitations. Dirty Harry said that, right? There was a day when I paddled out in one of these storms, and I was so proud that I actually got out through all of these breakers. And when I got out there and caught my breath and was sitting on my board, and I was like, okay, we're going to ride a wave in. And I looked out to the horizon, and I saw what was coming. I thought, oh, bleep, 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 bleep. How am I going to get in? Because if I try to ride that wave and I can't catch it right, if I fall on that wave, I am going to be pummeled. I'm probably going to drown. And I begin to fear for my life. How am I going to get in? And thankfully, the Lord brought me to shore. And that's, I think, when the time, that's the time when I really learned a man's got to know his limitations. Don't go chasing after those hurricanes. Wait till they go further off, out to sea. But fear gripped me. And I think of another group of people in a similar situation. I can think of the disciples. In every one of the accounts in the Gospels, they, they say the same thing. They were on a boat and a storm came up, so much so that the boat was sinking. In every single one of those accounts, what was their reaction? They were afraid. So much power can consume us, can mow us over, they were afraid. But what is the heavenly response to the storm that the psalmist is painting for us? And you can see it in verse nine. One word captures the response in heaven. 
Their perspective, when they hear of this storm, they, they shout one word, and that one word is glory, not fear. Glory. They see the power of the Almighty God, the one who is above the storm, and they shout glory. They ascribe glory to his name. That's the power of God in the storm. Thankfully, when we look at the last two verses, we're going to see something more about this God that we need to know, that he's not just glorious, that he's not just super powerful, but he's king. He's king over his creation, and thankfully, he's king of his people. You know, the most powerful storm that, that the people in the Bible knew of to hit planet Earth was the flood. What does it say in verse 10? The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. You see, the psalmist is declaring that Yahweh, he is king, he is sovereign over the most powerful storm in all of human history. Being king means he, he rules over it, he reigns over it. It's part of his sovereign de decree. It's not outside of his control. In fact, it is part of his decree. It's part of his plan. It shows forth his power. And I think one of the things that I take away when I think of God sitting as king over such a powerful storm is I think that he is king over any storm that can come into my life. Any storm that comes into my life or your life is nothing compared to the flood that wiped out almost all of life on the planet. We can take comfort that there is a king over all of the storms that will enter our lives. That means he's in control. That means he is reigning over it. That means he's ruling over that, that storm that is in your life. It is not outside of his, of his kingdom. And furthermore, in our scripture, it says his rule and his reign will never end. The Lord sits enthroned as king, how long? Forever. Forever. He is, he is king to the ends of the earth, but he is an everlasting king from eternity past to eternity future. Tiger's glory has faded. Tiger's kingship has faded, but God's kingship will never end. And the great news in verse 11 is that he is our king. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Now, this ought to give us immense comfort. Why? Because when we consider this powerful God, the God over this storm that crashes on the coast, he is king over his people as well. And that he's called a people to himself. Those words, his people, is something that should cause our mouths to drop open in awe and astonishment. Does God owe it to us to have a people? Does God owe it to us to call us into his kingdom? Certainly, he does not. But he does by his grace. And more than that, he is a good king because scripture is saying that he, 
the one who is all-powerful and almighty does what? He gives strength to his people. He blesses his people with peace. The Historical Writers Association, they surveyed 60 other writers, and they asked this interesting question. Who is, who is the, the worst king in all of England's history? And the majority of the writers settled on Henry VIII. This is what one of them said. He's a self-indulgent wife murderer and tyrant. Barely made it out of infancy, let alone adolescence, and ruled with little more policy than petulant self-gratification. Why was Henry VIII such a bad king? He was looking out for numero uno. Self-gratifying, self-indulgent. He was ruling and using his power for himself, for his own glory, for his own good. And the great news this morning, church, is we have a king who uses his power not for himself, but he uses it for his people. He is a benevolent king, so much so that he sends his son, his only son, to die for us. That's how he uses his kingship. He uses his kingship as a benevolent king to protect, to care for, to love his people, to give them blessing, to give them peace. And so as we consider this powerful God in the storm, as we consider our God who is so glorious, how do we respond? And I can think of two ways that we can respond this morning. If, if Jesus is your king, if Jesus is your king, if he is the one who is giving you peace, if he is the one who is giving you strength, if he is the one who is the Lord over the storms in your life, heaven and earth are going to be united because you are going to worship him. There will be shouts of glory from you on earth along with the shouts of glory in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your king, you have beheld the glory of God in the face of your Savior. And you will declare worship. You will worship him like you were doing this morning. If you're here this morning and Jesus is not your king, you have, you're not part of his kingdom. You don't know what that's about. You're outside of the kingdom of God. You don't know this, this king Jesus. He is not your king. You are not one of his people. You may respond like I responded in that storm. You may respond with fear. If not now, one day you may respond in fear. You will respond in fear when, when Jesus is revealed in all his glory, in all his awesome power and might. You will fear that day. And you will realize, yes, he is due glory. He is due. He is owed worship, and I'm going to have to give it now. You know, when power is separated from love, it's a fearful thing. 
It's a fearful thing. But when power is joined to love, it's a beautiful, glorious thing. And in Jesus, we see power joined to love because in Jesus, we see a powerful God using his power to do what? To care for people, to feed people, to heal people, to raise the dead, to bring newness of life. And so let me encourage you, if Jesus is not your king, come to this king. He is a benevolent king. He uses his power to love you. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you are the God of power. You are the God of might. You are king to the ends of the earth. And we dare to say that we are your people. And we can say that because of Jesus, your son, given freely to us to reconcile us to you so that you can have a kingdom of people for your own glory. Father, we shout glory this morning because glory is due your name. And I pray for the one here this morning who is yet to bow and worship the greatness of Jesus, who has spent their life worshiping the greatness of so many things on this planet, is yet to recognize the greatness of Jesus. I pray that light would enter their heart and that they would see the excellent worth, the beauty of Jesus, and they would come to him. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.